welcome. This is uh, podcast number six in our series from me, Alex Johnson. And me, John Fotherby. And um, this time, John, I think we're talking about variations and changes, uh, which I, I don't believe ever happen on construction projects, do they? Um, well, you must have a limited experience there, Alex. <laughs> um, I think it's a. It, this is an interesting subject that comes right at the end of this series of six. And I think we think of variations and changes as being straightforward change order or variation clause in the contract um that, all we have to do is comply with it but um again I'd, I'd like to refer to the arcadis reports where um owner instructed changes are a reason or a cause for dispute mm. and i think it's worth exploring that idea that Arcadis have come up with, because I think generally, if the variation or change clause is complied with, um, it's fairly straightforward. If both parties work with the, the language of the contract, then it's fairly fairly simple and straightforward. However, mm. and this is the problem. Yeah. Um, we we're getting. I just like to explore that idea of of Arcadis, of of, of owner instructed changes being a, a dispute issue. Yeah, it's it's strange that, isn't it? Because you'd think, as you say, it would be fairly straightforward if you know the owner has the right to change the work as it's being done for for whatever reason. Uh, it ought to be fairly simple that if if the owner does that, so you know if you add an extra extra train to your plant, then you know, the contractor would be expected to be paid for that. Um, but I think the problem is twofold, really. One, it's it's the first point that you mentioned, which is, you know, if everybody followed the contract, it would all be quite simple. Um, so if you, you know, if the, if the change procedure had been followed, it's either a change initiated by the owner, typically by notice, um, or the contractor can initiate the change. And if the owner agrees it's, it's a good idea, it, it gets implemented. And the provisions in the contract deal with the extension of time that is associated with that. They deal with the payment that is associated with that. If all of that's followed, then it ought to be fairly straightforward. But as we know, that isn't how it happens. And changes get made uh, without proper notices by the wrong person uh, verbally on the site as opposed to in writing or verbally and then followed up in writing. it, it can be very confusing just in terms of the process that's being used. And then I think the second point is it's one of those one of those questions that is almost not about the legal part of the contract. It's about the specification and what's included and what's not included. Um, so ordinarily in a lump sum contract, um, any work that's not either expressly or impliedly included is within the lump sum. Um, and so if that works included within the lump sum, then obviously the contractor has to carry it out and can't be paid any more for doing it. Um, even though the contractor thinks it might have been unnecessary, it's, it's just part of what needs to have been done. Um, and in the EPC contracts, of course, it goes one step further. And quite often you'll see a provision that says, well, 
even if the contract doesn't expressly state what needs to be done, the contractor needs to do whatever's necessary or, or whatever's reasonably to be implied by the contract in order to bring about the uh, the completed result. And so what is and what isn't a variation, it depends both on the terms of the contract, as you mentioned, John, but also the quality of the specification in the first place. And, and if the specification um, is very general, that can be a problem if, if it just says, build a power plant, then there's a whole host of issues with that in terms of what's a variation, what isn't a variation. Um, so the imprecision in a specification can be a problem, but then also the precision in the specification can also be a problem because, you know, if it if it specifies down to the nth detail and that thing is then changed, it can trigger a whole series of variations. So Unraveling all of this is quite difficult, not only from the point of view about contracts and notices, but also about the underlying technical documents, um, how clear they are about what's in the original scope and how clear they are about what is different to the original scope. And I've been using the term specification, throwing it around as if it's a sort of standardised thing that goes in the contract, whereas what we see in, in terms of the technical information in a contract is often anything but one simple and straightforward document. And um, it can be the case that a whole bunch of documents get put into contracts that have not been properly read through or assessed or worked out about how they fit together. Um, and that, that in my view, is, creates a, a whole battleground for potential variations. Um, and that's even before you look at what the employer's counter arguments might be. Yeah, and I think I agree with all of that and add to that um expressions like engineering development which i've yet to find a, t a definition for <laughs> that stands up yeah. but it's frequently used in these um uh, industrial plant projects um and alongside that i've seen in many contracts the fact that uh, the employer can give an instruction and if the contractor thinks that it's a variation or a change or whatever the definition is, um, then you give a notice in X days, 10, 14, whatever uh, minimal period it is. And this this raises two questions. You've, you've got imprecise technical documentation in terms of defining the entire scope. And then um, you've got this added language of, well, uh, whatever you do after that is engineering development and part of your price and time. Uh, and by the way, we can give you all sorts of instructions with regard to that. But what is an instruction if it's not clearly defined in the documents, in the contract? It, mm. If I get a revised drawing or a revised data sheet or uh, something scribbled on the back of a notepad or, you know, uh, an email, whatever. And of course, all of this is then compounded by um, the various processes that we go through, like model reviews, when the client and the contractor come together to see what's actually being built. So, you know, the 3D modeling is, is wonderful. It gives you a view, but it also opens up the opportunity for instructions to be given. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the same with the HAZOPs, and the HAZOP is absolutely necessary because it's about, uh, you know, the safe operation of the plants. It's very difficult to um, 
uh, argue against anything that people request if it's from an ahazop. But sometimes, um, uh, dare I say, that the, these opportunities are exploited to mm. get something that is a genuine variation, but they don't want to pay for it because it's under engineering development or something. So yeah. the whole question of change is 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 again quite complicated so the more you can define a contract award the actual scope of work what what is it actually defined by what are the documents that define it mm. um uh, and so often i see that this is unclear we've yeah. got lots of documents i mean you know meters thick of, of documents but are they clear? Do they actually define the scope? Or do they, do they just add to the problem? Yeah. Um, so the, the, in lump sum contracts for industrial plants, I think that getting those scope defining documents well well established is fundamental if you want to manage change because there has to be yeah. a baseline. And yes, you'll have the weasel words around engineering development. So it's like, but if that scope document documentation is good, then they become less important. Mm. And yeah. then we need to have something that deals with instructions, because what does an instruction consist of? Um, it's all right printing the general conditions, but how how do we define it? Yeah. Uh, and 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 then we we move into the back to this Arcadis situation of um, owner uh, instructed change as a cause of dispute. Well, this is this is it. This is it, isn't it? This is this is where yeah. it occurs. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think that that one is is one that um, again it's this 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 business of record keeping of what did we contract for first and what's changed and when mm. yeah. um, is 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 fundamental to go into the, the I think to the Arcadis thing but also I'd just like to move on to another subject on on variations and changes. And that is the um, cumulative impact, assuming that a client actually instructs a variation. So assuming it's straightforward uh, and both parties have more or less complied with the contract, then with two things, cumulative impact and ripple effect. How often do you see anybody dealing with those two issues uh, when they're dealing with change? <laughs> Never. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the 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 extension of time clause that we talked about two podcasts ago mm. um, um, deals one of the items for extension of time might be variations or changes, unless it's a very major change that is obvious to anybody. It is unlikely that a single change will impact the a critical path very yeah. unlikely in, in yeah. industrial plant jobs however as ibs points out in his in his um, um productivity um guide um there's two things with variations one is the timing so the later they become the more impact they have mm. and the number so if you have a large number even at the beginning of a job you will have a um, cumulative impact problem. Yeah. 
and that and if if you were talking about needing records beforehand uh when it comes to looking at cumulative impact and ripple effect you need a tremendous amount of records to be able to demonstrate yeah. and yet those things can be drivers for the extension of time and as we talked about in the in the previous podcast additional cost yeah uh and 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 therefore these aspects of variations and changes is the, the people can price the straightforward work engineering man hours materials equipment construction costs straightforward but what about the other costs mm. the the, yeah. the those sort of hidden costs because um according to ibs those costs can amount to uh 50% of the total change cost or more mm. so it's a is a huge amount of money and of course there'll be a time impact yeah i think on that there's a there's a tendency isn't there that when contractors submit their variation claims the, the direct costs are fairly easy to establish yeah. and what they don't do is deal with the time related costs or, yeah. or sometimes even the time itself they'll yeah. put the you know time and cost will be assessed later or something like that um but actually the, the point you made about the the number of variations and the ripple effect is is really interesting because when you think about the contracts there's very few limitations on the employer's right to order variations Sometimes you'll see a provision that says no single variation can amount to more than a particular percentage of the contract price. Sometimes you see that the contractor has a right to uh, object to a variation, but that is usually removed from the contract, even if it exists in the first place. And what you never see is a limitation on the number of variations that the employer can order, and you never see a limitation on when they can be ordered. Um, and you also have the provision that even if they've been ordered, um, whether the contractor is on board or not, they have to do the work. So it's almost a fait complete by the end because it, it's already been done and it has to be paid for. So it, it is quite interesting in that contractually those things are just not covered off either. Yeah. And, you know, if you're not dealing with the straightforward variations and changes comprehensively, you're giving away time and money as a contractor. I think that that's that's the the upshot. Um, the other the sort of flip side of the of that coin as well is so often, particularly in in industrial plant projects, uh, I've seen owners if the if the the contractors have a change order form, right? Typically. Um, and that'll set out the scope of work, a description of what's to be done, the change itself. And then there'll be a place for the costs, the engineering man hours, materials, equipment, so on and so forth, even a place for a margin added. And yeah. then there'll be two little boxes, delay or no delay, tick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doesn't say how much, it just <laughs> says, that, well, um, and I think this is an interesting an interesting subject because there's two two aspects that come in here. One is many owners will deny paying for the change if they take there's an impact on the schedule delay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
And then I think you, the, whether you need to tick that or not depends on the language of the contract. Yeah. If the contract says a variation has, and I'm paraphrasing now, I'm not getting into legalese like you do. Um, um, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, <laughs> if it says the change has an impact on the completion date, then that's a pure critical path analysis issue. Yeah. And it is highly unlikely, as I said earlier, that an individual change will cause a critical path delay. If, however, the contract says the change has an impact on the schedule, that is almost certain because yep. it will impact non-critical and critical and more likely the 80% of activities plus or minus that are not on the critical path it will consume float mm. now most contractors miss this because they can put that 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 sort of change in uh, and say this change of yours dear client has, has eroded on these activities x days or weeks of float and yep. that's mine and we need to price for that yeah you're absolutely right and the construction of most extension of time clauses is they're usually talking about critical delay if it talks about delay to the time for completion or the date for completion it is only talking about critical delay and i think there is a tendency to think that extension of time just means extension of time in general and actually it doesn't and as you say you you could quite quite easily have change orders that have no impact on the ultimate date for completion but they certainly delay particular activities yeah. uh, and consume float as you yeah. just mentioned and so i think that i agree with you the bit that contractors often miss is that uh is the money you know the the direct costs are quite easily to quite easy to establish but what they miss is all the money that goes with the erosion of the float and the uh, the indirect the you know the disruption related costs and productivity issues. Yeah, it's much easier to look at the productivity that we talked about in the last podcast uh, from an individual change point of view. Mm. So, you know, what's the easiest way to get a million pounds? Is usually one pound at a time. Yes, um, because nobody feels it going. Um, so, the, 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 there is a real, a real need to look at the the real. Um, evaluation of change whether that's you know admitted by the client or not where we started with the arcadis uh, definition um uh, and also from straightforward uh, changes um that occur uh, that are accepted uh, in principle by the the other side um but need to be fully priced uh, mm. And this 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 goes back to again to what you were saying, both with the time extension and with the uh, disruption and prolongation costs. It's all a question of record. Yeah. The 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 change the the contracts assume that the change orders will be administered in pristine time, in the right yeah. sequence and agreed in the right sequence. That's how they anticipate it. Mm. Whereas it's just a muddle. Yeah. So tracking when that work is carried out, not when the change order is signed off, is fundamental. In my experience, yeah. it's rarely done. Yeah, the focus is always on um, what is the what does the change represent, not what impact is the change having on everything else. 
uh, which is the far more significant piece usually yeah um and but all of that knowing that knowing in response to a change order request to be able to say the direct cost will be this the indirect cost will be this if there's an extension of time it will be this requires complete mastery over the documents and the records and the project and it is a model <laughs> and <there's, laughs> because that that level of mastery just isn't there no and uh, in engineering contracts my experience is that the focus is entirely by the contractors on the cost yeah. uh, and not so much on the real uh, effect of the change and when it was instructed and how, yeah. it, how it then uh, affected the, the performance of the work. I think contractors are missing a trick here mm. um, yeah. uh, and they could, they could improve, uh, um, get the true value uh, of the work being done um by a little bit more effort uh, but again it requires records we can't move anywhere without the records yeah and and if if there if there was that level of detail and records and analysis then it, it would be more straightforward for a contractor to say well yeah we understand your change order the total package of what your change order is saying is this and this is its complete effect on the work not just the cost of it itself, but what is it doing to the network of everything else that's going on? Um, that would be a much more powerful way of dealing with it rather than saying time and cost to be assessed later. Yeah. And and of course, Ib, as Ib says, many of these costs, when you're looking at the change order itself at the time, when it, it might be occurring, you can't assess them. Mm. And yet owners want to close out the change orders full and final before the contracts have a chance to judge. So yeah. either you don't sign it full and final, or you make a reservation that says, this deals with the direct costs, the additional costs, and we'll come back once we've seen what the cumulative impact is or the ripple effect or any other disruptive cost on those changes. But of course, contractors want the money out, the change orders, and owners only want to pay. Yeah. Uh, for the direct cost of the change and not this Mickey Mouse additional cost. Well, and here we right. come to my claims <laughs> territory where we started this series yeah, of six yeah. podcasts. That's right. Well, the, the problem with the disruption is you don't know it's happening till it's happened. No. No, you don't plan disruption normally. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that's a, a great way to wrap up. I think that, you know, the first six podcasts, as you said, John, that, that is all about the claims territory. And, and hopefully we've shown you that claims territory takes in a whole whole host of points about extension of time, delay, disruption, loss of productivity, etc. And so as before, um, if you have any questions, we're on LinkedIn. Please connect with us. Ask us the questions. We'll be very happy to answer them. And uh, see you on the next podcast. It's me, Alex Johnson. And me, John Funderby. Bye.